0: Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter four? Romans chapter four, and we're going to be studying verses one through eight together this morning. According to a 2008 psychological study, there is a single predictor of road rage. Not uh, when the study they they studied different aspects of commonalities looking at age, or sex, or ethnicity, or class, or geography, and none of those showed a consistent commonality in these instances of road rage. But there was one commonality between these instances. The presence, or actually the number of bumper stickers someone has on their car. The the, the only commonality that that this study found uh, is is of, of, of the instances of road rage is the presence of bumper stickers on the offender's vehicle, and the study found that it didn't matter what the bumper sticker actually said. The driver with the coexist bumper sticker is just as much uh, had a, just as much a likelihood to commit road rage as someone who had a sticker that said "Keep honking, I'm reloading." <laughs> it, it doesn't matter if the the bumper sticker says "Jesus saves." or a legalized pot. The only factor leading to an increased proclivity to road rage was whether they were bumper stickers, no matter what they said. And the study would show that the more stickers, the more likely the road rage. Now, there's one author who who looked at this analysis from this study, and, and I would agree with his his response, that he understands that this actually makes sense when we understand the way the bumper stickers function. People don't put bumper stickers on their car to get into rational conversation. They don't put bumper stickers on their car to persuade or have a conversation with people. They're just ways to express their opinions to strangers without having to get any sort of response, right? That often... Bumper stickers can just be ways of expressing yourself, especially in certain times expressing your outrage at other people's differences, right? This is, my, this is where I think the enlightened view is, not that view that's out there. It, 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 bumper stickers can be a way of saying, why can't you just be more enlightened like me? Why can't you just hold my particularly enlightened view? This is the right one. It's so right, I put it on the back of my car. And when we think about the church and our impact on those around us, isn't there a danger of us functioning just like spiritual bumper stickers? Isn't there a danger that we should be aware of where we would say to people, why can't you just be more spiritually enlightened like me? We, we would show outrage in a culture that's not smart, smart enough or not spiritual enough or not religious enough. As if we accomplished what we have in our relationship with God and our spirituality and our morality because of our own inherent righteousness. Because of our own her- inherent goodness. And they can too if they would just work hard at religion like we work hard at. But that attitude is directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been studying in our series, in this verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. That sort of spiritual pride and arrogance contradicts the good news that we, yes, we have the truth. We have God's truth, God's revelation of his plan of salvation. But it's not because, we don't have it because we are more religious than other people or we're more moral than other people or we were better than other people. We have it solely by the grace of God. And yet we're still so tempted to these attitudes and these behaviors of spiritual arrogance in our relationship with each other, within the church and our relationship with the world around us. And that brings us to the question that I think that our, our text will, will, will just will, will cut to the heart of this morning and that's how do we fight against this tendency of spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance? You see, as Paul writes to this church in Rome. And by extension, he's writing to us. What he writes here about the gospel, what he writes here about the gospel of, of, Christ, of, of Christ's salvation by grace, it destroys all of our pride. It destroys our arrogance. It destroys our boasting because it reminds us that we are 100% dependent on grace. That's the answer to pride. The answer to pride is grace. God's grace that is graciously given as a gracious gift to us. That is the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ and the basis for our Christian lives. So let's look at how Paul would flush out this argument for us about grace this morning. Let's first look at grace's prohibition. Look at verse chapter 4, verse 1 with me, where Paul writes, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh?' So Paul starts by saying, then, or therefore, he's referring back to Romans chapter 3 that we studied before our Christmas Christmas Advent series. So we need to remember what we have studied before. Let's look back there real quickly. In light of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3 that we are justified, that means we have been declared righteous before God by faith, not by our works, but by faith in Jesus who was our propitiation. We did not earn our salvation. Jesus earned it for us. Jesus bore the wrath that we deserve for our sin on the cross in our place. And in light of that good news of Christ's salvation, Paul, at the end of chapter 3, gives quickly, quickly gives two applications of what that means for us. Let's look at where chapter 3 ends again. Look at verse 27, where Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul's flushing this idea of since we've been justified by faith and not by observing the law, there's two implications that that has for us. First of all, he says that we can't boast in anything we've done. If it's all by grace, but through faith, then I can't boast in my religious accomplishments. And then the second aspect is that Jews and Gentiles then have equal access to that justification. And so that's what Paul's going to continue to explain here in chapter four. He's taking those quick Blurts of implications at the end of chapter 3, and he's saying he's going to flush them out. In verses 1 through 8, he's going to flush out this idea of, we have no room for boasting. And then we'll look at next week in verses 9 through 16, he starts talking about this equal access of Jews and Gentiles to salvation and to justification. So then if, if God's justification and salvation is purely by faith and not by works, then Paul asks, what was gained then by Abraham? Why would, why would he bring up Abraham here? Well, here's the logic. Think about if you grew up in Sunday school and you hear all those Sunday school stories and you think about the stories about Abraham. If, if the, the way that the Jews understood the Old Testament, that the ways that you look at those stories of Abraham, he was the model of a godly, righteous man. If anyone could have gained salvation by their righteous works, it would have been Abraham. Abraham was the one who faithfully offered up his son Isaac. Abraham was the one with whom God made his covenant to Abraham and his son Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel. Now listen from this time of the second temple period, around the first century, how the Jews regarded these stories of Abraham. The Jewish document of Jubilees, chapter 23, verse 10, says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. And well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So for the, the first century Jew, Abraham was the picture of what it means to live a perfect, righteous life before God. Uh, in the Jewish document of Sirach, uh, chapter 44, verses 19 and 20, says, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh, and when he was tempted, he proved faithful. So here's the Jewish view of Abraham. Abraham, before the law was even given, Abraham actually kept it perfectly. Abraham kept the law. He proved faithful. Even when he was tempted and God asked him to to sacrifice his son, he he was perfect in his obedience. He passed the test because he was perfect in his righteousness before God. That was the Jewish view, if you look at Jewish documents for the first century. See, today, when we go and we, we share about the gospel with people, and we say that, 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 that none of us can earn our salvation, right? that none of us are good enough to save ourselves, sometimes, I don't know if you've gotten the question back, but I've gotten the question of, well, what about really, really good people? I mean, I'm not saying that I'm a good, that kind of good person, but what about, like, Gandhi? I mean, God, Gandhi, Right? What do you do with Gandhi? And here's the Jewish objection that's similar. What about Abraham? That's the Jewish objection that's being dealt with here. Paul, you're saying that none of us are saved by our works, but purely by grace through faith in Christ. Then what do you do with Abraham? Because Abraham seemed to be be saved by his, his perfect righteous life. Out of all the Old Testament, Abraham was the model of righteousness. But Paul says that Abraham in the Old Testament actually agree with his explanation of the gospel, that salvation is not through works, it is by faith. Look at verse 2. Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul says, For, for further explanation, he's further ex- explaining what he's talking about. If, if, assuming for the sake of argument if Abraham is the greatest of all the Old Testament saints, if he earned his righteousness before God because of his works, if Abraham really was the perfect righteous man, then, Paul says, if that's the case, then Abraham really, and those like Abraham, really do have something to boast about. That boasting and pride would be appropriate for Abraham. Because then Abraham could say that he's righteous and the pagans around him, they weren't. He earned it and they didn't. So the point of the story then, if you read Genesis, would be you need to, be more, you need to try harder to be more like Abraham. That would be the point of the story. And isn't how, that how we often hear the Old Testament stories explained? You need to be more faithful like Abraham. You need to be more courageous like David. You need to be more diligent like Nehemiah. That's what's going to make you stand out spiritually. That's what God really wants. That's what's going to give you a right position before God. If you work harder like these Old Testament saints, then you, like them, can earn your position before God. If this is true, then Abraham was faithful to God where others didn't measure up. If that's true, then Abraham that did the spiritual work which gives him legitimate reasons to boast and have pride against others and before God. But, there's a big but here, but... Paul says, wait a minute here, but that's not the case. Abraham can't boast because before God, that means from God's perspective, even Abraham failed to keep the law. Even Abraham is the most faithful and righteous example anyone can come up with, the the most faithful example the Jews could come up with from the Old Testament. Not even Abraham could earn his righteous justification by works. And if that's not the case, then how was Abraham saved? We'll look at verse 3. For, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says, for, or because. You see that there in the text? Because this is what the Old Testament actually says. It's not what the Jews interpreted and thought about Abraham, but what does the Bible actually say? How was Abraham righteous? How was Abraham right before God? How was Abraham saved? It's not because of his works. It's not because he passed the test and other people didn't. It's it's not because of Abraham at all. What does the Old Testament actually say in Genesis 15, 6? If we think about that passage in the context, God is continuing his divine promises to Abraham about how Abraham is going to be the founder of a nation and bringer of a blessing to the whole world. And this time God is promising him that his descendants are going to be as as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And what is Abraham's response to God and the result of that? Well, Paul is quoting exactly from the Greek translation, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, that says, Abraham believed God, and as a result, it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham wasn't right before God because of his works. The Old Testament never taught that Abraham was righteous before God because of his works, but because of his faith. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. This, this idea of count is a bookkeeping term used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to, to one's personal account. But we need to be careful how far we push that metaphor here because Paul's not saying that God is looking down at Abraham's faith and saying, oh, there's a good one. Man, that's a good thing he did. Man, that's a good act of faith. We're going to count that in the good column. We're going to count that faith in the righteous column. Okay, that's going to add to his righteous works that maybe his goodies are going to outweigh his baddies. That is not what Paul's saying here. See, we're gonna see it later in verses four and five. That's not what Paul means. That's not what Moses meant in Genesis 15. This is not about counting Abraham's faith as, as just another righteous deed. In fact, that's why some translations, if you have a, a NASB or an NIV or a CSB translation, they translate this word credit. Abraham has no righteousness of his own, he has no righteous deeds, he has nothing in that goodies category of the bookkeeping ledger. He has no standing to be right before God. But when Abraham believed God, God credits him a status of righteousness. Not just a little tally on the righteous column, but he credits that entire aspect of righteousness that he never earned, that he never deserved, but that God gives him, credits him purely by grace. That's why Paul says that no one, not even Abraham, can boast. Because none of us are right before God. None of us have righteousness before God like ourselves. None of us have, are, are, are righteous enough. None of us are courageous enough. None of us are, of us are diligent enough that we are all safely, purely by grace, just like the Old Testament saints. Here, here's Paul's point in all of this. That if we understand it's all by grace, then we have nothing to boast about. Pride is. Or grace prohibits spiritual boasting. So, Paul, if he were here with us, he would ask us this. He would say, Oakers oh Be Free Church, then what becomes of our boasting? When we understand that every ounce of our righteousness comes purely by God's grace, that He credits to us that we never earned, how does that affect our boasting? In light, of our, in light of God's grace, what becomes of our boasting is we interact with the world around us. Why, is it some, why do we look at the world around us? Why do we know and believe God's revelation and others don't believe? Is it because we're smarter? We had better parents to teach us better? What is it that, that why do we live faithful and obedient lives, lives before God and others still live in sin and rebellion because we're more moral people? because we've tried harder at our righteousness? Is it because anything in ourselves that we have to boast about in our own abilities? The gospel of grace says no. The gospel of grace says that it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. See, the answer for our broken world is not for us just to be angry and and be outraged with with these bumper sticker boasting that says, why can't you be more religious like us? Yes, we do stand on God's truth. Yes, we do have God's truth. Yes, we live out what God has said in his word. And sometimes the world would call that arrogance. They would call that pride. We would say it's actually submission. It's submission to God's revelation. But the answer for others is not just to say, if you try harder, if you try harder like I'm trying, then you can live the life I'm having. The gospel of Jesus Christ shows that the answer is to recognize that everything we have is a gift of grace, that we have received God's amazing grace, and, and that's what we have to offer others as well. There was a couple years ago that a dear family member of mine, she was going through a very tough time in her life, and we were talking on the phone, and she said at one point, "You just seem to have everything figured out." And how tempting is it at those points to go, "Yeah, and let me tell you how I did it." You start going to church. You, start, you, you change these things about your life and you can clean yourself up and you can get yourself right. Do all these, these good things. But that doesn't really solve the problem though, does it? That's not the gospel. That's actually completely opposite of what Paul's saying here is what really makes us right. We can clean ourselves up somewhat in our relationships with other people, in our relationships with society, but we can't actually fix the root problem outside of the gospel. See, I don't have things figured out just because I do more religious things than she does. So I had to say, listen, it's not that I have things figured out. I am a sinner. But I've experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's the message we have to give. Also, in the light of grace, what becomes of our boasting with one another in the church? You know, as I'm thinking on this and how that applies to us, studying this this week, maybe think about, you know, just our approach to discipleship with man-to-man and woman-to-woman starting up in the next few months. You know, Pastor Bob was right last week when he pointed to Jesus as the model for our discipleship, where where Jesus took others along with him to teach teach them how to do life together, as they did life together. And that is the model we want to follow. But we want to remember that there is a crucial difference between what Jesus did and what we can do, right? There's a, a crucial discipleship for the, what Jesus can offer and what we can offer, right? None of us are Jesus. Am I right here this morning? Right? So none of us are Jesus. So unlike our Savior, we have nothing to offer other people outside of the grace that God has given us from, from who he is and the gospel he's given and the revelation he's given. See, our goal is not just to make people like me, right? It's not saying, look, I've got everything figured out. Look at my wisdom. Look at my discernment. Look at how I look at the, the preferences that I think are right and the way that you should run your life. And and my goal would then be to make people just like me. That's that's actually not biblical discipleship. That you only get half the picture there. Paul says yes be imitators of me but you can't stop there. In 1 Corinthians, you have to continue on in the verse. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the things that are a part of me that are not God's grace of what he's given as is, is, is I'm following Christ, those are not the things I'm trying to replicate. I'm trying to replicate the evidence of grace, the means of grace, God, the, the truth of God's word in other people's life, Not just saying, I have so much to boast about that I need to make another Craig. That's not the goal here. The goal is saying, the imitators is me as I am an imitator of Christ. See, that not only keeps us humble, right, as we serve others, it keeps us humble as we, as we go around saying, yeah, I'm the guy who needs a disciple. Right. It keeps us humble to realize I have nothing to offer of any eternal value except what has been graciously given to me. But it also allows us to disciple in a way that encourages God-given differences. That I don't have to just disciple guys like me that have the similar preferences me and similar interests in me, right? You don't have to be a, 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 a theology nerd to, 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 to be discipled by a guy like me. I, we can appreciate differences that people have, right? God-ordained differences, because I'm not just trying to make someone with my abilities and my gifts and, and, and my preferences, but we're just trying to help each other follow after Christ. It also helps us to, to recognize that you may sit here this morning and say, I don't think I have anything to offer anyone in discipleship. Well, have you experienced God's grace? Have you seen God's grace in your life? Are you seeing God's grace evidence as you're studying his word? Then yes, you do have something to offer. See, discipleship is not thinking that, yes, I have something to boast about and share with others. No, discipleship is about that God has has given his grace to me, has used others as a means of grace in my life, and so I can be a means of God's grace in the lives of others. Who wouldn't want to be used by God like that? That's what grace does. And, and so let's, but that's not all that grace does. Let's look at, as Paul continues here, let's look at grace's preclusion. Look at verses 4 and 5, where Paul would say, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul's elaborating on what he said in verses 2 and 3. He says, now, or to explain further, Paul's describing more this contrast, this polarity, this opposition between works in verse 4 and faith and belief in verse 5. So look at first at verse 4. Paul's giving us an illustration of works. He's using an a example from just everyday life that we've experienced, most likely. So imagine that you're hired for a job, Paul's saying, and you do that job well. You put in your time and you put in your effort and you put in your labor and you get that job done. Paul's saying at the end of the day, here's what you're probably not thinking. You're probably not thinking, man, I hope my employer is really nice and and, and I hope he's nice enough to give me a gift of payment for what I did today. Is that what you're thinking? No, I'm seeing a lot of heads shaking no, right? That is not how jobs work. After your hard work, you you understand that something, as the CSB translation says, is owed you. As the New Living translation says, you have earned your wages. As the NASB translation says, something is due for the work you performed. But, Paul says, you need to contrast this picture of working in verse 4 with this picture of believing in verse 5. Look at that. Do you see the differences between those two? Working relies on who? On yourself on what you did to get the work done. Working relies on your ability to get the job done. What you are owed for what you did, your own ability, your own spirituality, earned your right standing before God that you feel is owed. And that's the heart of every other world religion, every other world philosophy, every other worldview that's around. It's all about good advice about what you have to do to be a good person, about what you have to do to be an ethical person, about what you have to do to be a righteous person. Salvation is then all about you and what you have to accomplish and what you have to work for and what you have to perform if you pray enough and obey enough and are transformed enough if you do those works that are required of you. But Paul says believing is totally opposite of that in verse 5. Believing relies on who? Not on you, but on somebody else. Believing relies on God who's already gotten the job done for us. Because as ungodly people, we can't get the job done spiritually. In contrast with working, that, that involves doing to try to earn for ourselves, believing is all about receiving what God has already accomplished for us. This is why it makes the gospel different from every other religion and philosophy and worldview. Because the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. And that means to believe in this God includes believing and understanding that who are the ungodly? That we are. That everyone from Abraham and the heroes in the Bible down to us, we are the ungodly. We can never do enough work to make ourselves right before God. But as Paul explained back in Romans 3, God provided Jesus as a propitiation, that on the cross he bore the wrath that we deserved for our sins in our place as our substitute. So you see, when Paul says like Abraham, our faith is counted as righteousness, credited as righteousness. This isn't about anything we've done or any change we've made. It's not about any righteousness we have to offer God. Instead, God gives to us a gift of righteousness that's not our own. He gives to us an alien righteousness. The first time I heard that, I thought, I think I grew up too much on X-Files, right? You think alien is like somewhere in outer space, right? No, alien meaning outside of us. It's alien to us. It's from outside of me. There's nothing that I could offer God righteously, but God offered me a righteousness outside of me, crediting Christ's righteousness to me as his gift of grace. And so here's Paul's point, that grace completely precludes, completely excludes, isn't completely contrasting with any sort of merit or works. They stand in opposition to each other. You can't hold on to thinking your works make you right before God if you're professing in a gospel of grace. So do you see what that means then? That the gospel absolutely kills our pride. See, we all as human beings are deluded sometimes by our own goodness. We, we all see other people and go, hey, at least I'm not that bad, right? We're thinking that, that maybe we're just, we're just enough to make the cut to be good enough. In fact, maybe you're here with us this morning, and you're visiting with us, and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to say welcome, that we are so glad that you're here with us this morning. But Paul would ask you in the text this morning, Are you perhaps deluding yourselves by your own goodness? As we sometimes ask, as our church would sometimes ask others when we're talking about spiritual things, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Do you think your efforts at good works and your, your, your good works to your family or to the community or even to your understanding of God, do you think that that's going to guarantee your salvation or give you a right standing before God? I, I want you to consider that even the best of our deeds are actually not good in themselves. And I make this not just as a, a biblical argument. Even there's an atheist philosopher, Luke Ferry, who makes a similar argument, and he recognized Let's say that we decided to to give our lives over to a good purpose. Let's say you decided to give your lives over to meeting the medical needs of poor people. The question this atheist philosopher asked is, why did you do that? Why would you choose to give your life to that specific deed? And the answer that he gives, which is right, is that we would do those good things because we personally find that activity to be good. I think that that's good. I think that's a worthwhile and significant way to devote my energy as a good deed that I find to be good. Well, here's what this atheist philosopher argued, and I agree with him. He argues, then, then you're helping the sick people, not really for their sake, but for yours. You see, you're doing it, and we're doing it then, just purely out of selfish motives for ourselves, because it makes us feel worthy, because we think that that is good. We find that significant. In spiritual terms, what we're doing there is we think we're doing good, but we're actually just making, we're just worshiping ourselves. Look how great I am to do these good things. You see, even our best works have selfish and corruptive motives where we're living for ourselves. That's what our lives are surrounded by. That we live as if we're the God of our own little universe where we're rejecting and rebelling against the God who created us. That's what the Bible calls sin. That we have rejected God, we've rebelled against him. But although we have rejected God, God loved us. God loved you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we could never live, that perfect righteous life. And he died on the cross not for anything he ever did, but for our sins in our place as our substitute to bear the, bear the punishment we deserve for our sin. And he rose from the dead to offer us this gift of eternal life where Jesus would take our sin and freely give us his right standing before God. And this is not a good advice about what you can do if you try hard enough to, in, in, in Christianity compared to some other religion. That's not what this is about. This is, not, this is not good advice about what you could do. This is good news about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. It's offered to you as a free gift of grace if you would return from your sinful rebellion against God. That's what we call repentance. And you would turn to Jesus Christ, which is what the Bible calls faith, as your Savior and Lord. If, if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us and not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, And you want to know how you can have your sin forgiven. You want to know how you can be reconciled with God. You want to know how you can have this free gift of eternal life. Not about good advice, but this good news. Please don't leave this morning without asking us the questions you have. We just want to answer your questions. Please ask uh, the person who brought you, ask any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary after. I'd love to answer your questions. And for those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, Remember that Romans wasn't primarily written to those who hadn't heard the gospel, but to those like us who we already know the gospel, we already believe the gospel. Paul says we also need to be reminded of these truths. See, we are also sometimes so deluded by our spiritual goodness that we are also those who suffer from spiritual pride. How how do we know that? I remember when I was in college and I was in an accountability group with a bunch of guys, and one of the questions we'd ask each other every week is, have you given in to any instances of pride? And we'd always get stuck on that one, right? Because what do you do if you say no? No, not this week. Ah! Right? What do you say to that? how, how 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 do you really answer that question? How do you test and see that? Well, Paul is answering it right here. Remember that Paul is writing this to, to specific issues that are going on in this church. First of all, this is a church that is experiencing disunity with differences between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and the church that's leading to this, this disunity in the church. Well, what's the heart of disunity? The heart of disunity comes from this prideful disposition that says, my differences are better than your differences. These ones really matter more than what you have right? That, that's, where, that's where disunity, that's the heart of that. And, it, it, and that means that you're forgetting the gospel, Paul says. Because if we're all unrighteous under sin, and there is no righteousness that comes from any differences we have in our age, or, or our, our, our gender, or our marital status, then our preferences and our differences should never divide Christ's church. But Paul's going to later say in Romans 14, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We would favor and show grace to others as God has favored and shown grace to us. Remember that Romans was also written as a motivation to the church to, to partner with Paul in missions and evangelism. Well, why doesn't the church engage? Why don't we engage more in evangelism? Why don't we engage more in missions? Paul would imply it's not just that we're afraid sometimes, but that we are spiritually prideful If we have this gift of salvation that we didn't earn and we didn't deserve, and if we don't tell others how to have that same free gift that we have, then then we're acting like we deserve it and they don't. Like we are better or more righteous and they're not, which is a complete misunderstanding of grace. See, the people around us don't need people to give them more good advice. That's what they're getting from, from the culture every day. But they need people who have experienced God's grace to tell them how they can experience that same grace. Now, as we're, we're getting close on time here, let's turn to the last couple of verses, this last picture of grace. Let's look at grace's provision. Look at verses 6 through 8, where Paul says, "...just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered." Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, Paul is making a comparison between Abraham's example of justification by grace through faith, just as David's similar example in Psalm 32. Paul's pointing out that both Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 are using this counting language or crediting language in a similar way of God counting righteousness to both apart from works. This is actually a popular type of Jewish argumentation of the time where, where Jews would take an example from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and an example from the Law and the Prophets to say, this is, what the whole old, this is what the whole Scripture teaches. So think, think about this reference then from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Joe read for us the, the whole context of this this morning. In this Psalm, David is speaking of his own life as someone who is weighed down by his sin. He's experienced such guilt and shame from his sin that it feels like his bones were wasting away and like his strength was dried up. And maybe you're here this morning and you can relate to David. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been silent about your sin. Maybe you're trying to, to, just to keep it secret and you're thinking, I, 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 if I can just try a little harder. If I could just try a little harder in my spiritual life, then I'm not going to have to confess that to God. I'm not going to have to address that with others. But maybe you're feeling the weight of that this morning. Maybe you're feeling the weight of that silence and that secrecy. Maybe it's making you, like David, groan all day long. It saps your strength. It dries up your joy in the Lord. Is that you this morning? If that's you this morning, here's David's words to you. Don't be silent about your sin anymore. You can be open and honest about your sin. You confess it. You can confess it because we have the answer for sin. Jesus, the Messiah, died for your sin so you could receive the blessed experience of forgiveness from God, who assures that if you believed in Christ, your sin will never be counted against you. How do we know that? Because it's not based on what we've done. We did nothing to earn God's forgiveness, which means there's nothing we can do to lose it. It's a gift of grace that the Lord counts no iniquity. I love the, the, the lyrics of the song. I grabbed this from Emily before the, the preaching time. The second verse of behold the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, David is saying the same thing that God had said about Abraham in Genesis 15. Both Abraham and David are sinners. Both Abraham and David didn't have the necessary good works to earn their standing before God. But both Abraham and David were counted righteousness, righteous before God. How is that possible? Not because they did enough to earn their status before God, but because they're ones who freely received this gracious forgiveness from God. The only thing Abraham and David had to offer God was their sin. Let me say that again. This is the point of why Paul is pulling in the psalm. The only thing that David and Abraham could offer God was their sin. That's the only thing that they could bring to God. But how blessed is the one who believed the good news that God accepts us in faith. He accepts us just as we are, sin and all. And by his grace, he provides the forgiveness we need, promising to never count our sin against us because Christ bore our sin and we are credited with his righteousness. And and so the point here is that grace provides what we can never earn. It provides our much needed forgiveness for our sin. And so again, if you're here this morning and you're living in silence and you're trying to deny the sin you're struggling with, you're trying to, to hide the sin that you're struggling with, listen here to David one more time where David says, as Joe read this morning, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count as sin. My friends, pride looks inward. Pride tells us to hide our sin. Pride gives in to shame and guilt and says, I can fix it and be more spiritual, and then no one has to know. But pride forgets the gospel of grace grace brings blessedness because grace looks outward grace looks to what god has already done for our sin not what i can do to fix it but what god has already done to cover it grace reminds us that every ounce of sin has been paid for so that grace shows us we have nothing to hide we have nothing to be ashamed of we have nothing to be guilty over because christ bore shame and guilt guilt and shame is a tool of the devil because Christ paid that, paid it all for us. We've been cleansed by Christ. So grace teaches us that we don't have to be silent. We don't have to deny and hide our sin anymore. We can confess it. We can confess it to God, and we can confess it to others as we would be in that process of repenting and turning from that sin. As Christians, part of what it means to be Christians are those who confess and repent their sin. And that doesn't mean that, that we're going to have everyone come up and you have to confess your secret sins here after the service today. But it means that you've got people in the body of Christ that you are, are, are talking and confessing your sins to so that you're, you're being, so you have someone bearing that burden, that weight of sin as you're, as you're in that process of repentance. It also means that as you have particular sins, as we as Christians have particular sins where we have sinned against other people, where we have sinned against our family, where we have sinned against our coworkers, workers where we have sinned against our roommates, where we have sinned against our, our fellow church members, that we can be honest about what we've done. We can be honest and say, yeah, I blew it. I sinned against you in doing that. Will you forgive me? We can be honest about those ugly things that we've done to other people because unlike the world, we don't have to give into guilt and shame and fear because we've experienced the blessed forgiveness from God that justifies the ungodly. Our transgressions have already been forgiven. Our sin has been covered. Our iniquity iniquity will never be counted against us. We are walking testimonies to the grace of God. Pastor Bob already quoted Charles Spurgeon, but I want to give one more illustration that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon gave. He told a story once about a great artist who wanted to paint a picture of the part of the city in which he lived. He wanted, for historic purposes, to include certain characters that were well-known to the town. They were always there doing their job or doing their activities in town. One of those people, known to everyone, and whom the artist wanted to include was a certain street sweeper. He had a distinct look around town. He was unkempt and ragged and filthy, but that's because he would that, that fit with his job that he went and did every day. And the artist said to this ragged and rugged individual, I will pay you well if you will come down to my studio and let me paint you. Well, he did come around in the next morning and he was quickly sent away because he'd washed his face and he'd combed his hair and he'd found some fancier clothes to put on. You see, the artist needed him as he was for that picture to be accurate, not as he would try to pretend and dress himself up to be. And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? We come to God not as we would pretend and dress, our dress ourselves up to be by good works. Not, not in our attempt to, of, of, of good works to, 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 that would lead to some spiritual pride of the, I contributed something to my righteousness before God. No, all we had to offer God was our sin. We come as we are. We have nothing to offer but our sin and depravity. And God is the one who justifies the ungodly. He is the one who provides the forgiveness and righteousness that we could never earn. And so we have nothing to be prideful about. Grace kills spiritual pride. It kills spiritual arrogance. We have no spiritual bumper stickers to hand out after service this morning <laughs> to show how of our spiritual enlightenment. We're simply people who have experienced God's amazing grace. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace as it first appeared to us as we heard the gospel and you opened our eyes to what Christ has done for us. And we thank you that that grace continues, Lord. We thank you that we, you would remind us that we are dependent just as much on grace at this moment as we were on that moment. <clears throat> So we thank you for that grace to remind us of the wretches that we are so that we would see the glory, glory, glorious nature of who you are as the one who justifies the ungodly. So we give you all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.